About a month ago, I, uh, I looked at the calendar and I thought, wow, it's almost the end of January and we haven't gotten sick yet. We are doing so great. And then the month of February has just been like one illness after another and I finally got it this weekend. So you have to bear with my, my scratchy voice this morning. Um, but otherwise, hope you are doing well, hope you are feeling okay, and welcome again to Discovery. My name is Steve, and I'm the lead pastor here. It's great to be together, as always, and um, I want to begin with just a couple quick things. Uh, one of these things I introduced to us last week, uh, but I want to put it out there again. We are about to send a team to Honduras here in a couple of weeks uh, during the, the week of spring break for uh, UC Davis. Um, this comes out of an emerging story here. Uh, our very own um, John and Barb Zeller own a coffee farm down in Honduras, and uh, I believe John is actually helping serve coffee today, so if you want to ask him more about that, you can find him back there. But uh, this is a, a, a growing relationship, and we're really excited to send this uh, sort of first team down there to uh, see it firsthand, get an idea of what is going on, and to begin asking some questions and discerning if there might be some ways for us to be uh, in a longer-term partnership with uh, the ministry that's going on down there. So just want to, again, put that out in front of you and, and ask you guys to be in prayer about that, to be thinking about that team, praying for safe travels, but also for wisdom and discernment during that week when we are on the ground. Other thing is this, we are now into this season of Lent, and I want to say thank you to those of you who came uh, on Wednesday to the Ash Wednesday service that we did with our friends at Christ the Redeemer. Really fun to, uh, to be there together for that, although the Ash Wednesday service is definitely more of a somber gathering, so it was sort of like fun to do it together, but then we were all sad together, so... Um, anyway, it was great to do that, and uh, uh, we continue to unpack this conversation of Lent and fasting, one of our practices in groups. And so if you are not currently involved in a discovery group, want to once again extend that invitation to you. Jump into this conversation um, with our groups. I just bumped into a couple people in the lobby who, you know, were asking me, like, what is your group doing and how are you guys uh, talking about fasting and some stuff like that. So it's just really cool to hear how you guys are processing all of that. All right, uh, open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone on our team will come around and make sure you have one of those. 1 Samuel is about 25% of the way into the Old Testament, if you're trying to find it in your, in your Bible. We're in chapter 3, this is the third part of our journey through 1 Samuel. And I'm just going to read one verse and then pray, but we're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time going through 1 Samuel chapter 3, the whole thing together this morning. So it begins like this, 1 Samuel 3 verse 1, the boy Samuel, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli, and in those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to uh, be able to come together into this place and to worship, to sing these songs back to you, to give of our time and our resources, um, to be together, to grow in relationship with each other, and God, also to just pause in the middle of, of busyness, a busy quarter, 
a busy moment in, in the year, just the, the sort of normal busyness of our lives, God, to pause and to step out of all the other stories that are being told and, and to be uh, present and attuned to your story and to submit ourselves to, to who you are and what you are doing. God, we pray for this time together now that you would help us to be fully present here, that you would speak to us this morning, that we would be able (coughs) to respond in whatever ways we need to respond. Help us to be in tune with your uh, your spirit and help us to hear your voice today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to begin here. We have in our day and age, I think we have this strange sort of ambivalence towards aging, towards the idea of age. The, the cultural currents are pulling us towards this almost endless youth. We don't want to get old. We try to avoid adulting as much as possible. And, and there's this fear underneath that, perhaps of, of death. Uh, to be quite morbid, but I think even more than that, there's this fear of what I would call the death before death, this death of irrelevance, not mattering anymore. What was the OK Boomer hashtag, if not this, right? <clears throat> this sort of like declaration that you don't matter anymore. There's a, a worship, I think, in our culture of youth, and yet at the same time, there's also this dismissiveness towards youth. It's not just young people looking at the older generation and saying, okay, boomer, we don't need you anymore. But it goes the other direction as well, right? There's endless memes and articles decrying the emerging generation as lazy, as entitled, self-centered, overly idealistic. I mean, on and on it goes. My personal pet theory, for whatever it's worth, is that some of the division we see in our country today is as much to do with a generational gap, a generational breakdown as anything else. And I think maybe the the person who embodies this ambivalence the most is Greta Thunberg, Time Magazine's person of the year. Depending on who you listen to, who you read, you may think that she's the paradigm for this youthful revolution that's going to save the future of the world, or you may think she's just a delusional idealist just a crazy kid, right, who has no idea how the real world actually works. So we, we are in this very odd moment. We're celebrating the young, but we don't really listen to them. We write off those who are older than us as irrelevant, as not mattering anymore. We've painted ourselves into this weird cultural corner. And then we come to the story of Scripture And in the story of Scripture, over and over again, we see that God uses both the old and the young alike. Abraham was 75 years old when God came to him and promised him that he was going to play this central role, be a central figure in his plan of salvation. One of Israel's greatest kings, we're about to get into the era of kings here as we make our way through 1 Samuel. One of the greatest kings was this guy named Josiah. He led an amazing period of renewal. He became king when he was eight years old. And so all over the age spectrum, we see God using 
all kinds of different people, no matter what their demographic, to further his mission and purposes in the world. And now today we turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 3, to two characters, Eli and Samuel. I think there's a lot for us to consider here about how God uses different generations to, again, further his mission, this mission of renewal as we looked at last Sunday. So a quick review just to get us back on the same page. One of our big themes this year is what we are calling imagination formation. Having our whole lives, heart, soul, mind, and strength formed by God's story. And part of that formation process is happening as we consider these different practices, these spiritual disciplines. Throughout the year, we're introducing eight practices. So far, we've looked at Sabbath and fasting. We have another one coming up here in a couple of weeks. And then we are spending most of our time in our groups this year trying to figure out, okay, how does this, how does this look? How do we live this out together in community? And then 1 Samuel, also very critical to our imagination formation. This Old Testament book that's just full of great stories and very colorful characters who give us models of what a story-formed imagination looks like. So for the past two weeks, we've been hanging out with the character of Hannah. Hannah, who is Samuel's mother, is a great example to us, especially through her prayers. This great example of what it looks like to contend. This is a, a term that we introduced last Sunday. Now remember, the context of 1 Samuel is this dark period in the Old Testament story. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we've seen the, the degradation of particularly the religious institution, right? The priests who were supposed to be leaders and servants are the scoundrels, are exploiting women, abusing their power, using their privilege to enrich themselves. And it's in this very dark moment that Hannah emerges, in this moment of, of corruption and institutional failure, this moment, we might say, of decline. And we, we've learned so far that it's actually in these periods of decline where it looks like everything is falling apart, that God is oftentimes up to some of his biggest and most interesting work, preparing for a time of renewal. This pattern of renewal looks like this. Again, it begins with this period of decline, and from that decline emerges a remnant, Hannah and her family, Hannah and Elkanah, faithful to worship. From that remnant, there's a, an experience of holy discontent, this sense of it doesn't have to be like this. There's more out there for us than, than what we're currently experiencing. This decline doesn't have to go on endlessly. And so they begin to contend. That holy discontent leads to Hannah contending for God to move. Remember me. We've defined contending as the marriage of Prayer and action, right? Hannah prays her guts out, but then she also makes a vow. And she makes this very sacrificial commitment to give her son Samuel over to God's work. And from this, we're going to see over the next several chapters, God bring a period of renewal. Now back to chapter 3. Here we go. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not 
many visions. Some great context here in verse 1. Samuel's still a boy, but this is the third time now that we've uh, been told that he is ministering. He's serving. He's attending to the needs of people in this role of priest. Eli, the priest who is in charge of worship, who is Samuel's supervisor, is much older than Samuel and yet has yet to be described as ministering. We've seen him uh, in a mostly negative light to this point. We've seen him policing Hannah's behavior, right? There's this moment where she's praying, and it's so... It's so emotional, it's so public, it's so out there that, that uh, Eli assumes that she's drunk. We've also seen him completely out of touch with the misdeeds of his sons, his sons who are the scoundrel priests who are abusing their power. For him, it seems the priesthood is just a job. This is just sort of a, a, a paycheck that he is collecting. Eugene Peterson writes, holy places provide convenient cover for unholy ambitions. Holy places provide convenient cover for unholy ambitions, and unfortunately, I'm guessing many of us know exactly what he means by that. So here we are. There's this time. The word of the Lord is rare. There are not many visions. The religious leadership is is corrupt and, and full of scoundrels, and so it's to Samuel the boy that God goes and speaks. Verse 2, one night Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was, and the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, here I am. Some really interesting things going on in these three verses. Uh, uh, It's kind of working on a couple of different levels Here, Eli is old, and we're told that he has weak eyes, which is probably both a literal thing, but also very metaphorical, right? He has had a very hard time seeing what is going on, was not able to see what was going on between Hannah and God, was not able to see what his sons were doing. The leader, the head priest who's supposed to be their spiritual guide and sage, has weak eyes has trouble seeing. But then we're also told here, there's kind of this random fact, right, about the the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, this was an actual lamp that would be burning in the place of worship, and you'd fill it with oil, and over the course of the day, that oil would go down, and then it would go out, and you have to refill it in the morning. So the wording here is partly to indicate that uh, the, the timing of this. This is at night. They're getting ready to go to bed. The lamp is still burning. It's not like the middle of the night or, or early morning, but Uh, at the end of the day. But then again, also works on a metaphorical level. There's a little bit of a glimmer of hope here, right? God has not yet given up on Israel. The lamp of God has not gone completely out. So God speaks to Samuel. Samuel does not know what he's hearing. He runs to Eli and says, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you. Go back, go back to bed. And all the parents of young children said, amen, amen. So he went and laid down, but again the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son Eli said, I did not call you, go back and lie down. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. 
The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So a third time, the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. And then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. Here we go. We can see Eli's weak eyes. He's having a hard time recognizing what is going on here. On the other side of this, you have Samuel, who is young and inexperienced. He does not yet know God's voice. And so there's this, you know, sort of funny exchange three times where Samuel's like, hey, you called me, and Eli's like, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And then finally he has this aha moment. And I think there's a couple of really important things for us to see here, to learn from this exchange. The fundamental belief of our faith is not so much that God exists, although certainly that is a foundational part of it, but I would say even more important than that, we believe that God not only exists, but that God speaks. God interacts with us. He's not distant and removed from the action. God's involved with us. He speaks to us. God spoke the world into existence. God has spoken to us through his scriptures. Jesus is described in the Gospel of John as the Word. God speaks. And we can have a relationship. We can have a conversation, a back and forth with this God who speaks. God not only speaks, uh, but he, he speaks personally. He doesn't use philosophical jargon. God speaks to named people. Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Mary, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. God speaks personally. And I think this is really important truth for us to sit with because, again, in our uh, cultural moment, in this current moment, the bent is towards depersonalized language. Language that reduces us to consumers, to the summation of our data, to a particular role that we might play. It's kind of tricky, right? Because a lot of stuff is individualized. You get these targeted ads and these things that feel like Amazon knows you or whatever the thing is. But it's not personal. They don't know you. Depersonalized language is the language of most of our interactions. The God of Scripture speaks personally speaks into history to actual people with names and addresses. Now Samuel, on the other side of this, does his part, right? Samuel is listening. He's paying attention. God initiates Samuel response. To borrow a phrase from Jesus, Samuel has ears to hear, but Samuel doesn't know what it is that he's hearing. This is our great challenge in the with God life, right? How do we recognize God's voice? How do we know God is speaking to us? How do we know that what we are hearing is from God and not from someone or something else? This is the task of what we've called uh, here orthokresis, right discernment, the ability to know and recognize God's voice. Samuel's listening, but he's not quite in tune with God's voice yet. He's just starting to work out his discernment muscles. And so again, he thinks that it's Eli who's talking to him. Now, one of the roles of the priest was 
this, was discernment, was helping people know this is what God is saying. This is how you recognize God's voice in your life. But Eli, who's having trouble seeing, doesn't recognize it at first. Eventually, he does get it. He, he does fulfill his role as priest, and he helps the boy Samuel name the voice that he's hearing. And then Samuel answers, which is to say Samuel prays. Samuel follows in the legacy of his mom, Hannah, and begins this conversation with God. We saw Hannah pray in, in a very raw and honest way, right, praying her guts out. And then we also saw her pray in a very poetic and, and deeply prophetic way. Samuel here gives us a, a yet another way to pray. Five times in this chapter, Samuel prays, here I am. Here I am, here I am, here I am. This is a repeated prayer throughout Scripture. We see it in the story of Abraham. We see it in the story of Jacob. see it in the story of Moses. And in the story of Isaiah, here I am. Hannah went right to God, right? Wrestled, challenged, worshipped. Samuel is available. Open-handed. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. But Samuel's also inexperienced. He needs help. And so finally, Eli leads Samuel. He tells him, go and lie down. And if he calls you again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. This, by the way, is an excellent prayer. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went and laid down in his place, and the Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel, speaking personally. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Sometimes... Maybe a lot of the time we need help, right, in recognizing God's voice speaking to us. We need older, wiser, more experienced people who can come alongside us and say, yeah, that's God speaking to you. People who can help us recognize and name the voice. So now Samuel is finally ready, and God does give him something to say. The Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. That is a great opening line. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke about, or against his family, from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin that he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering. A lot going on here in what God says to Samuel. Now, on the one hand, there's some, some uh, good news, I guess, for Samuel. He gets a bit of a resume boost here, right? He takes on the role of prophet as well as his ministry as a priest, but then on the other hand, this is a very difficult first assignment. Commentator Paul Evans writes, Samuel is an apprentice of Eli, and his first prophecy is railing against his master. To say this was awkward does not do the situation justice. 
He, a youth, is called to level judgment against the most powerful family in Israel. Now for Eli, this is the second time that he will receive this bad news. Earlier it came through an anonymous prophet. This time, though, from (coughs) the mouth of Samuel, his protege. The role of priest will be taken away from Eli and his sons. They are going to (coughs) die. Excuse me. (coughs) There is no sacrifice or offering that will be able to change this outcome. Now, there is some good news here uh, for us anyway. If we pull the camera back for a minute, what we see here is that God does hold bad leadership accountable. Eli and his sons do a lot of damage to many people, but they will not ultimately get away with it. And so God transfers the priesthood (coughs) from Eli to Samuel. But then Samuel has to go back to bed and sleep on this. Look at verse 15. Samuel laid down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Now, I don't know about you, but one of my pet peeves is what I would call relational loose ends. Right? The, the, these like conversations that you have where you don't totally have closure on them. And I just did this to someone this week, so this is both a pet peeve and a moment of confession. <laughs> But you know how like when you're texting with someone and it's starting to get later in the day or at night and, and you're like 90% of the way to um, nailing down a, uh, a you know, lunch or whatever kind of meeting you're going to do and, and you're just like waiting for that last little detail and you're like, I need to go to sleep. But I also don't know, are we, are we actually meeting you know, at noon tomorrow? Right? Relational loose ends or, or, or one of these things where like someone says, hey, I, I have something really big that I need to talk to you about. But I'm super busy for the next, like, three weeks. So, so, you know, in a month from now, do you have some time in your calendar? You're like, what? Like, what big thing? Like, where are we going to wait so long for this? Now, this situation is way heavier, and there is, you know, much more of a timeline on this. But I imagine Samuel going back to bed and thinking, oh, man, tomorrow is not going to be any fun at all, Right? But tomorrow does arrive, and Samuel does follow through. Eli called him and says, Samuel, my son. And Samuel answered, here I am, once again. What was it he said to you? Eli asked, don't hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he has told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. And Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Eli has failed, right? He's mailed it in. He's abdicated his role of priest, minister, and servant. And yet here anyway, he does not shy away from the truth. And he lets the boy Samuel deliver it to him. For all of Eli's many faults, this moment, I think it really stands out to me. An older man being able to receive the word of God from this boy. And Eli, able to say in response to all of it, he's the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. I think you could read that perhaps as resignation, or maybe this is a glimmer of hope 
for Eli in his old age? We don't totally know. But again, here, in this moment, when the word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions, we have an old man helping a young man discern, name the voice of God speaking to him. And we have a young man ministering to an older man, not shying away from giving this challenging word. The young man is attentive. Here I am. And the old man is receptive. Let him do what is good in his eyes. God works through generations. We need each other. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So at the end of the chapter here, the narrator pulls the camera back, and we see the full shift from Eli's leadership to Samuel's leadership. And we once again see some of the connections between Samuel and Jesus. Jesus, who at the age of about 12 was found in the temple. Samuel, who's ministering as a boy in the place of worship in Shiloh. In these contexts, we see these young men grow. Growing up literally, but also growing in their understanding and wisdom in the congruence between their lives and God's words and their ability to hear from God and to speak on his behalf. When Jesus was 12, for three days he was in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is very similar to what we're told about Samuel. First Samuel is a Jesus-haunted story. Hannah is a precursor in so many ways for Mary. Samuel, a precursor for Jesus. These figures who would lead renewal. Samuel brings a renewal of worship and leadership to Israel in this time where there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Samuel brings good news to the people of Israel. Jesus brings renewal of worship and leadership, though, to all people. Good news for everyone. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, there are some words from an Old Testament prophet named Joel. These are words that show up a couple different times throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, that give us a picture for what these moments of renewal can look like. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. There it is again, good news for everyone. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Again, words from the prophet Joel. Peter uses these exact same words in his first big sermon in the book 
of Acts. Sons and daughters will prophesy. The young will see visions. The old will dream dreams. One of the signs of renewal is the coming together of the generations to contend together, to pray and act together, calling, asking, begging for God to move. And then God's spirit being poured out on both. The young will see visions, the old will dream dreams. What would it look like for young and old to come together and contend here at Discovery. Now, probably that could look like a whole bunch of different things. I want to suggest just a couple of things for us today. First, I want to give a challenge to the younger demographic, and I'm not going to draw a line here. You just have to kind of orthocrete for yourself <laughs> what side you fall on. But for those in the younger demographic, my challenge to you is this. Write down a list of your questions. What are your big questions? Where, where do you struggle to discern and, and to know God is speaking to you? And then I want you to find someone who is older than you, who you uh, respect, who you have a sense is in tune with God's voice, and I want you to ask them those questions. How do I discern God's voice in these things? How have you done that? And then second, a challenge for those of us who are older, and I'm going to include myself very much in this demographic. My parents are here this morning, so they're laughing at me probably. For those of us who are older, the challenge for us is to give the keys over to the next generation. It is to allow the Samuels to speak to us and to lead us to share the word of God with us, even hard and challenging words. This is one of the reasons why I am so passionate about our growing internship program, and we'll have more information about this coming uh, in the next few months. But I think we have a tremendous opportunity here in Davis to invest in the next generation of church leadership. And, and we cannot let that opportunity go. We would be foolish to waste that opportunity. When I was doing campus ministry in Boston, one of the first students that I connected with was a, a local kid who had grown up in the city, and, and so we had the chance to get to know his family a little bit. And I'll never forget this one particular conversation that I had with uh, this student's dad. He took me out to eat or something. And we're sitting there, and with tears in his eyes, he said, we've been praying for you. My wife and I have been praying for someone like you, that our son would meet someone like you. You are the answer to our prayers. That was a very humbling moment. You are the answer to our prayers. There are parents all over the state, all over the country, all over the world, quite frankly, who are praying for their kids who are here right now at UC Davis or who will be coming to campus here in the near future, you may be the answer to one of their prayers. But we can't get in the way. We can't hold on too tightly. We must release the next generation to do what God has called them to do. Now, finally, one more challenge, and this is for every one of us in this room, whatever demographic category you feel you fall into. 
Raising up the next generation of Samuels is not just a college student thing. This begins with our babies, and it goes to preschool and to elementary and to middle school and to high school. And for our youth in particular, who we just dismissed a few moments ago, they're over there with Amanda right now. I think the challenge for us is to begin contending for them and to begin contending for them primarily through prayer. Uh, Amanda's been doing a wonderful job with them, but she graduates here in June. And I think there's a good, big question for us about what youth ministry looks like here moving forward. The first step, though, I believe very much is that we must pray. We must contend for our youth, both the students that are a part of our ministry, but also the other kids in our community who are going to the middle school and high schools here. What does it look like for us to contend for the youth of Davis? Samuel and Eli remind us we need each other. We need young people. And we need older people as well. God speaks through each other. He forms us in his story through our stories. He reminds us, as we like to say around here, that we are better together. And we must contend together. And again, one of the signs of renewal is the generations coming together, the young seeing visions, the old dreaming dreams. What does it look like for us to contend in this way? Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we, um, we begin this moment now of responding uh, by confessing that um, all of us probably bear some sort of prejudice towards uh, different age demographics. Whether that's writing off those who are older than us as irrelevant, whether that's dismissing those who are younger than us as, as um, being too idealistic or whatever it might be, God. We all bear some sort of prejudice, and so we confess that. We ask for your forgiveness uh, from that and for a new heart, a humble heart towards one another. We can learn from uh, from all kinds of people. God, you use all sorts of people to bring good news, to bring renewal, to do your work through. And so, Father, I, I ask that we would have um, many older voices, wiser voices who can speak truth, and that we would have many younger voices who can challenge and lead and inspire. May we have people who dream dreams and see visions, God, as we contend together for you to move in this place. Thank you that um, because of what Jesus has done, some of the typical barriers in our world are done away with. And so, God, may we tell a different story here as we uh, are just a small picture of what your family can look like. May we tell a different story here at Discovery. And again, may we come together to contend for you to move. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.